Amen. Amen. Good morning. Man, it is a good morning. It's good to see you all here. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 in just a moment, so go ahead and turn there if you want to in your Bible or your phone or your gadget. If you don't own a Bible, didn't bring one with you, we put black cardback Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy. And we'll get started in Revelation chapter 12 in just a minute. Uh, it is the first uh, Sunday of Advent today. Christmas is on the horizon. I hope that you're preparing your hearts uh, and your homes to worship Jesus this uh, Christmas season. I think even today, uh, through the message, hopefully your hearts will be stirred as we think about his first coming in preparation for his second coming, and that's right around the corner. And in addition, tonight is a very special night. Uh, the, uh, the gentleman who did our welcome today, you affectionately know him as Brian Lamb, uh, introduced himself as our discipleship minister. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock in this room, we are ordaining Brian as a pastor. He's been in a one-year process over the last year and has completed that. And uh, we're excited and honored to watch him grow from, from really just a kid um, into this amazing servant for Jesus that he is today. And uh, so tonight, we want to invite you as extended family to be a part of that. Six o'clock in this room, we'll have a service, and uh, we'll be ordaining Brian during that time. All right. Revelation 12. If you're joining us, visiting with us, haven't been here in a while, we're working our way through the book of Revelation. It's an incredibly complex book, uh, very difficult to get framework established. And uh, one of the reasons for that is the rich imagery uh, that, is, that is, is, uh, is drawn a lot from the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, uh, even Isaiah. And so we're having to do all the hard work of pulling all this together. But another reason why the book of Revelation can be difficult is that there are these breaks in what's unfolding, literary breaks, pauses, if you will. Um, we looked at one last week in chapter 7 with the 144,000. The unfolding of events took a pause between the sixth and seventh seal, and we took some time to look at how God's sovereign power over evil protects the saints, and that was the theme of chapter 7. Chapter 10 is a literary break as well. Uh, this is an interesting part of the, of the unfolding of things where uh, an, another angel appears with a small scroll, not the big one that Jesus is unsealed, but a small one, and John, the apostle who's watching all this happen, is told to take and eat it. Kind of a strange thing, and he does. And it's at first sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. And this brief pause or literary break uh, is, is, is showing us through the expression of even uh, taste how the end-time events are both bitter and sweet. There's a sweetness to it knowing that the sovereignty of God has put boundaries on his enemies and boundaries on the evil one, yet it's bitter. Why? Because right now the evil one is still having his way inflicting persecution and suffering and, and bringing about death to God's people. And so despite the fact that, that there is bitterness to it, though, there's also a sweetness knowing that God is in control. And so that's chapter 10. Now we've made it to chapter 12, and it's the third and final literary break or interlude, if you will. And we're going to take a minute to look at an overview of Satan. We're going to look at his purposes, his timeline, and, uh, and, and for a brief moment, his beginning and his end. Let's take just a second to look at our timeline here that we're using every week. So if you're new with us, we'll kind of refresh you on what we're doing here. So the, the five events on this timeline mark several different things. First of all, it outlines your Bible. So when you start in opening up your Bible to the very first verse of chapter 1 of Genesis, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, we get a fall. This is where Adam and Eve rebel. They buy into the lie of the serpent, and they rebel against God, and sin enters the world. 
fractures the relationship between man and God, fractures the relationship between Adam and Eve and their offspring, creates this enmity between the the evil one, Satan, and the offspring of Eve that will stretch forward in human history. We call this the fall. A shadow is cast of sin and death, as Psalmist uh, writes in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. From the fall, moving forward in human history, the stench of death lingers in the air. With every act of rebellion, with every argument between my wife and I, with every act of terrorism, with every catastrophe that happens on the earth, the stench of death still lingers in the air. And so throughout your whole Old Testament, there's this crying out, God, save us from this. Save us from this death. Save us from this darkness. And God sends a rescuer in Jesus and the Gospels. And so your New Testament begins here with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the Gospel account of Jesus, where Jesus, God's Son, enters the story and brings about a great rescue. The Gospels end with his death, burial, and then resurrection. He gives marching orders to his disciples, and then he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. The very next book in your Bible is the book of Acts, or Acts of the Church. The church launches, and we launch into the church era, which we're in today. And from there, as you move through your New Testament, you'll get to the book of Revelation, which is an unfolding and an unveiling of what is to come. Now, there's a lot of debate, and we'll talk about that throughout the series, between here and here. When, does the end, when do the end times start unfolding? We'll talk about all those debates. But the undebatable, indisputable thing that we're looking forward to is the return of our king. This is the end of Revelation, where he places all of his enemies underneath his feet, including Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and death itself die. And then the new heavens and the new earth is recreated, perfect and good. And so this is the outline of your Bible, but this is also the outline of human history. We find our beginning in this story. We find the creation of Adam and Eve in uh, in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Chapter 2, we get a real detailed account of day 6 of creation. Chapter 3, we participate in the fall, right? It's our sin that casts this shadow. It's, it's the people who are crying out for a rescuer. Your whole Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel crying out for a rescuer. And as we will see, this will be the end of human history. At the, at the extent of both ends exists eternity. And your, this timeline represents measurable temporal time. There's something else that we're going to see today about this timeline. You're going to find the movement interaction of Satan as well. And we're going to have to look hard because he's incredibly deceptive. We're going to see the Bible describe Satan's interaction with creation from the beginning to the end, his beginning, his end, and his purpose of destruction on our lives even today. And all that is going to come to an end. So here we go. You ready? Chapter 12, Revelation, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And so we have this imagery here. One of the things that we're going to see today throughout chapter 12 is the difficulty in distinguishing between is God talking about the nation of Israel or is he talking about the church as a whole? We saw this last week with Revelation 7. 
It's almost like God doesn't really want us to see a distinction as the nation of Israel gives way to the nations coming to God as one people, one bride of Christ. And so we're going to see this interaction today as we, as we roll through here. So first of all, we've got a woman. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head has a crown of 12 stars. Now this um, astrological imagery is, is pretty common in the Old Testament describing the nation of Israel. Uh, just for example, when God makes the promise to Abraham in chapter 12, later on in Genesis, he reiterates that promise to Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. He tells Abraham, look up into the sky. Try to count those stars. So will be your descendants. Now, Abraham thought that he was just simply talking about the nation of Israel. We see the nation of Israel grow into a great nation. But that's not all that God was talking about in that promise. He was talking about the nations coming together to be as uncountable as the stars in the sky. And here we've got a reference to 12 stars in her crown. So you see, we, we're, we're getting this imagery of the nation of Israel and potentially the, the church as a whole here described as the woman. In just a few minutes, she's also going to be uh, seemingly compared to Mary, giving birth to Jesus. And we know that ultimately today, right now, the church is called the bride of Christ, this woman also representing us today. Now, what we're going to see here is this great battle between the woman, her offspring, and God's enemy, Satan. And that's the main thing that's unfolding today. So as we get into verse 2, we're going to see that she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, this has come up several times in the book of Revelation. It comes up in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the end times. It's in Romans 8, talking about the church today, crying out, longing for the return, the rescue, and crying out like a woman in labor. And so here, this woman is in labor. Now, if we think about the nation of Israel, under the shadow of death, experiencing the impact of the fall, and we go through the, the whole Old Testament, you're going to come across account after account of the people of God crying out. God, when will you rescue us? If you read the Psalms, the Psalms are rich with the prayers of God's people crying out, God, rescue us. Similar to that song we sang earlier, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Right out of the Psalms, this idea that life is really hard right now. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the saints of God, that the children of Israel cry out, God, rescue us. And the prophets begin to proclaim this great rescue that is coming. We also see in this woman giving birth that, that ultimately the rescue comes through the birth of Jesus. And we see Mary portrayed here. I'm going to see it more vividly in just a minute. That through the nation of Israel and ultimately through Mary, God brings about his rescue plan. And this is what Christmas is about. God sending his rescuer to earth. God saying, I'll come to earth. I'll put on your skin. I'll walk through your experiences and I will rescue you. And so God enters the story through Mary. But it's also described as the church. The church is crying out along with creation, as we read in Romans 8, longing for the sons of God to be revealed, longing for the return of our king to come and to put all of his enemies finally to their end. And so in this imagery of this woman being pregnant, you can see Israel, you can see Mary, you can see the church as a whole. Now we're going to be introduced to the dragon, Revelation 12, 3. Now, it's interesting. You're going to notice this, hopefully. And another sign appeared. So this is the second sign. What's different? This one's not a great sign. The great sign is God's rescue, his deliverance 
through this nation of Israel to rescue all nations to himself. That's the great sign in verse one. Now we've got another sign. It's not a great sign. It's another sign that appears in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. Now this is this rich imagery of, of God's enemy being portrayed as a dragon. This isn't uncommon for ancient cultures in human history to portray evil or the enemy of God as a serpent, a dragon, some type of beast like that. Um, we're just going to look at some biblical references here to see how Satan himself is connected with this dragon all throughout the Old Testament. Matter of fact, Jesus, uh, Genesis 1, or excuse me, Genesis 3, verse 1, this is the fall. We read this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And what we're learning is what? That this serpent is actually Satan himself. Depicted in Genesis 3 as a serpent who comes in craftily, disguising himself, spinning lies that Adam and Eve believe, deceiving them to believe his story instead of God's story. Just twisting the truth a little bit, he comes in as a serpent. In Job, we get a more specific reference Job 3.8, let those curse it who, who curse the day. Let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan is this ancient, uh, historic, dragon-like, dinosaur-like creature used to depict evil. And here Satan himself is being called the Leviathan. And then in Isaiah 51, verse 9, this, this call to the nation of Israel, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake in the days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? And so through the Old Testament, we get imagery of a serpent, we get imagery of a Leviathan, we get imagery of a dragon depicting God's enemy, ultimately Satan himself, as he wages war on God's people, tempting and lying, seeking to devour and destroy our lives. What's beautiful, though, is that all throughout the Old Testament, you also get this prophetic word that this dragon will one day be defeated. Isaiah 27, 1 says, In that day, speaking forward to the return of the Lord, on that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This rich imagery of God bringing to an end his enemy. Even in Genesis 3, at the pronouncement of the curse, we're told this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity, strife, and struggle between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be this everlasting, seemingly everlasting struggle between Satan and his demons and the descendants of Adam and Eve. And he says this, he shall bruise your head. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, this struggle. And then we get to Romans 16 and guess what Paul says in verse 20. He says, the God of peace will, peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So while there's this ongoing struggle as a result of the fall between Satan and the descendants of Eve, there will come a day, right, where his head will be crushed. When his, his time on earth will come to an end. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so there's that imagery of the dragon, God's 
ultimate enemy here on earth. Now, the diadems that we see uh, represented in, in his crown uh, represent a false crown, a false sense of authority, a false sense that he is a ruler here on earth. Now, we'll just look practically speaking. It feels that way some days. It does. It does. It feels that way uh, globally, and it feels that way personally some days. Like Satan has the upper hand. It looked that way at the cross until the resurrection. It looked like many days in our lives like Satan has the upper hand. You look globally at what's happening around the earth, news reports, right? Open up your browser to a news page, open up your newspaper. The headlines are going to, or what? They're going to bear evidence of the fall, and it's going to look like Satan's just having his way. Another stabbing, another shooting, another terrorist attack, another politician that lied and scandals are coming out, right? Just one after the other. The Bible describes Satan this way. In John chapter 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, so three times in the Gospel of John, he's called the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. That's Jesus calling Satan the seemingly, the facade ruler of this world. In, uh, in Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of air. This idea that right now on earth, Satan seems to have a sense of authority and, and he's, he's posing as a ruler here on earth. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls, calls him the God of this world with a lowercase g. So right now, Satan is masquerading as a king. And he's got, in this imagery of the dragon, diadems on his head. What's interesting is we get to Revelation 19. Guess who has the real crown and has diadems in his crown? Jesus himself. And so you see Satan masquerading right here with false authority as the father of the universe. And you're going to see that as we go forward in the next week with the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself, this false trinity emerging. The false representation of God depicted in the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And here he's masquerading with this false crown, pretending to be a king. Now on a personal level, we feel the impact of that on a daily basis. He's so deceptive though. Every day Satan is trying to be your king. He's trying to rule you, control you, lead you astray, rewrite your story, talk you into following his will, not God's will. Now, let's continue on. It's interesting in Ephesians 6, 12, it's probably one of the best marital uh, advice passages I could give to you. Right here, gold nuggets, right here. You ready? Ephesians 6, 12. This is going to fix everything that's wrong in your marriage. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? It doesn't feel like that on a daily basis. It feels like I'm wrestling against flesh and blood. But the word of God says you're not wrestling against your spouse but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the fall, this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why it feels that way, right? I oftentimes feel like my wife is the enemy. Gosh, she's so strong-willed, stubborn woman. And she feels like I'm the enemy. Gosh, you're such a hard-headed man, always have to have your way. And the word of God is saying, hey, get, get your gaze off of each other. The enemy, the ruler of this world has fooled you into thinking that you're at war with one another. God's word says that's not where the battle is. The battle is, against, is between Satan and the offspring of Adam and Eve. Your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan himself. 
If we could truly grasp that truth, how different it would change our interaction with one another, wouldn't it? He's so deceptive. In verse four, his tail, so here's what's gonna happen. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. We're gonna get to the tail sweeping in just a minute. Okay, Because it's probably going to lead us to think about something that's happened already in the past. Uh, but here we don't get a lot of details. But his intent is, is illustrated here. We see his intent. He's sitting there watching the woman about to give birth. And his goal is to devour the child. Okay, So if we go back to the nation of Israel, right, awaiting the promise of the Messiah, that one day God would send his rescuer through the lineage of David, ultimately through the lineage of Abraham, he would rescue the world. You see Satan crouching there like a dragon, waiting to devour the rescuer, waiting for that moment when God sends his son to earth. Same imagery, even when, when, when uh, Mary is there giving birth, he's sitting there waiting to devour the rescuer. We see his influence on the Pharisees, we see his influence on the disciples. Let me just give you a few examples here. John 13, 27. This is at the Last Supper. Bread has been broken, and Judas is finally sold out. Look at what John recounts from that moment. In John 13, 27, he says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. This is talking about Judas. And look at what Jesus says to him. What you are going to do, do quickly. See, we look at, G at Judas and we just put all the blame on him and say, man, he's a sellout. How could you be that close to the Lord Jesus and then sell out at the last minute? And Jesus says, here's the deal. Satan, right, Satan was influencing Judas. It was ultimately Judas carrying out Satan's will, not his own. You see how crafty Satan is? So Jesus says to, to Judas, hey, go do what you're going to do. In Matthew 16, this is right after Peter makes the great pronouncement to Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, man, you didn't figure that out on your own. My, my father in heaven revealed that to you. And I'm going to build my church upon that statement. Right after that, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. And Peter steps up. He's the same one who had that great proclamation. He steps up and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no way. We're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let you go to the cross. We're not going to let them kill you. And then these words from Jesus as he rebu rebukes Peter, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. In that moment, he was speaking past Peter to Satan and Satan's influence over Peter. And what was the problem? Peter, in that moment, was beginning to buy into a different story, a different set of circumstances. Jesus said, here's the will of the Father, that I would go and die. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not going to work. And he begins to interfere and try to change the story. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. As Peter gave in in that brief moment to the will of Satan. We see the Pharisees seeking to arrest Jesus. And in Mark 3, we're told that the Pharisees were seeking to destroy Jesus. And so we see, that we see the Pharisees as ultimately Jesus' enemy here on earth, right? These guys are out to get him. 
Look at what Jesus says to them in John chapter 8. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's calling them out. And just a brief history here. The Pharisees are operating at this time in the story with so much pride and arrogance. They feel like because they are related to Abraham from way back here, and they're descendants of Abraham, they're children of Abraham, that they have the blessings of God regardless of Regardless of whether or not they believe God, regardless of whether or not they obey God, they were operating with a sense of arrogance. We're children of God. We're the descendants of Abraham, right? Back off. And so Jesus calls them out. This is in John 8. He says this. They answered him, being Jesus, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're not Abraham's children because Abraham followed the will of God, and you're not following the will of God. Look at what he says in verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who your dad is. Has nothing to do with who you're related to. Has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has to do with whose will you're following. That was Peter's issue. He began to follow the will of Satan for a brief minute. Jesus rebuked him. And here he's rebuking the Pharisees who think that they've got it made just because they're Israelites. And Jesus said, don't you think for a minute that that impresses God the Father? If you were a child of Abraham, you would act like Abraham, and you would follow the will of God. But instead, you're following your father, the prince of this world, the ruler of the air, the one who is right now wreaking havoc on God's people. You're following his will. Now, what I want to do now is just for a brief moment, if you're taking notes, let's just state what we're reading here in The Purpose of Satan. The purpose of Satan is to prevent God's divine plan and to kill God's people. So whether you interpret this passage to be about the nation of Israel waiting to give birth to the Messiah, or you're reading it about Mary waiting to give birth to the Messiah, or you're reading it about the church waiting for the Messiah to come back, either way, either way you read it, what we're seeing is that ultimately Satan's purpose is to prevent God's plan as he sits there crouching like a dragon waiting to devour the rescuer waiting to kill him before he rescues God's people. The purpose of Satan is to prevent God's divine plan and to kill God's people. We're going to start in verse 7 now, and we're going to see what seems to be that, that same story where the dragon is, is sweeping out a third of his angels from heaven. Uh, verse 7 seems like it begins to describe that event with more detail. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at the timeline now of when all this is when this is taking place, starting in verse seven. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, 
There's not a whole lot of evidence in the Bible that there are a few spots that talk about a historic event where Satan was cast down. And the description here sounds a lot like the Bible's description of a, of, of a past tense event, maybe, maybe an event that happened between Genesis 2 and 3, where Satan and his angels were cast down to earth. And then in a minute, it's going to sound like, well, maybe, maybe we're reading about an event that took place right here. And then, and, then, and then a few minutes later, it's going to sound like we're reading about an event that takes place in, in the future. So right now, though, it's seeming to describe something that took place. So in Luke, Jesus says this in Luke 10, 18. It's a brief verse, but he says this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, it sounds similar to what we just read, doesn't it? Cast down like a dragon to the earth, taking a third of his angels with him. And Jesus just said, I saw Satan cast down from heaven like a lightning bolt. That's, how, that's what a sucker punch feels like from God. That's my interpretation. Bow like lightning. But then we keep reading, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Well, that sounds more like this part of the timeline, doesn't it? And for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Now that's beginning to, 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 to stir up this imagery of even the cross itself, that it's the blood of the lamb and the testimony, the faith of the people that brings about the conquering of Satan. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So it's not super clear, are we reading about an event that took place way back in human history, maybe at the beginning? Are we reading about something that took place around the time of the cross, or are we reading about something that's going to take place in the future, or are we reading about all three? One that gives way to another that gives way to another. Look together. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 14, so we're in the Old Testament so if you picture this as the timeline of the Bible, we're about six or 800 years before Jesus comes. And here's what he says. It's quite possibly talking about Satan. It seems that way in verse 12. How you, have, how you are fallen from heaven. O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Prophet Isaiah describing the heart motives of Satan. But look at verse 15. But you are brought down to Sheol. Now is the prophet Isaiah talking about something that happened in the past or something that will happen in the future? In Colossians 2, we read about the cross and the impact of the cross on Satan himself. Colossians 2, verse 13 says this, talking about us, by the way, Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What is that talking about? Before you came to know Christ, you lived greatly impacted by the fall. You lived as a dead person. You had no eternal life in you. 
You didn't know it, but you were following the course of this world, following under the authority of the prince of the power of air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what Colossians is talking about. You used to follow the will of Satan. But God made, al- made us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You and I were guilty before the cross. Guilty. Treason, abandonment, rebellion. We were as guilty as Satan himself. But the debt was canceled. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by what? Triumphing over them in him. In him is Christ. I don't know if you followed along with that, but that's talking about ultimately the power of the resurrection. So think about it. On Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified, he was subjected to public humility and shame. I mean, it looked like the greatest catastrophe of all catastrophes, right? If what we read in the Bible is true, if you're in that moment on Friday and you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you're watching the son of God be killed. And if that's the end of the story, hope is gone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied more than anybody else on the earth if the resurrection didn't happen. Why? Because the resurrection is where God flips the story on Satan. It's where the greatest catastrophe becomes the greatest you catastrophe, meaning what looked like it was going to end in just imminent destruction all of a sudden is flipped into victory and becomes beautiful. And in that moment, Jesus steps out of the tomb. It's a brief moment in human history. He steps out and says to us, I've got this. There is nothing that has power over you. Nothing, if you're mine. I have defeated death, and ultimately I've defeated Satan. And then he ascends to the Father, and now here we are living in the in-between. We have both the impact of the shadow of death and the impact of the victory of the cross in our hearts. And, And that's a daily battle, isn't it? And it's simply a battle of belief. In any given moment, what do you believe is true? In a moment of despair and darkness or depression or suffering, or right? are you going to believe the lies of the enemy that would say to you, see, God's forgotten you. See, God's not real. See, God doesn't love you. He wouldn't let this happen to you. All these lies are spinning. And the battle for you and I is a battle of belief. What do you believe is true in that moment? Do you believe that your Savior resurrected from the dead and put openly to shame Satan. In that brief moment, he steps out of, the, out of the tomb. Now who's bearing shame? Satan is. What looked like a tragedy on Friday has become a victory on Sunday. All right. And ultimately, when we, we'll get to chapter 19 and 20 in Revelation, we're gonna see Satan once and for all defeated with the Antichrist and the false prophet and thrown into the lake of fire. And so there's some interpretive difficulty, if you will, on which event is being described here. The historic one, the one at the cross, or the one in the future, or all three. But here's the the thing. The point's the same, isn't it? What's the point? The point is this, that God, or Jesus, demonstrated his power and secured the final victory over Satan at his resurrection, period. That's the main point here. Our victory is secured by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. 
not by your super religious morality, not by your religious facade, not by your church attendance, not by how much money you give. None of those things can bring about victory over death. It's the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony that bring about victory. And ultimately, it's the resurrection of Jesus that secures the victory across both ways across the timeline of human history, extending into eternity. Jesus demonstrated his power and secured the final victory over Satan at his resurrection. Now, verse 13. Now what's going to be described is this ongoing lingering struggle and battle that takes place before the end comes. I believe this even though it's going, to, it's going to sound, again, like possibly Mary and Jesus or the nation of Israel and Jesus, it's going to describe our ongoing struggle as followers of Jesus right now in the church era. Listen to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. Okay, so it's like, this feels like a sucker punch to me. Like he just got flat, thrown out of heaven like a lightning bolt and didn't even realize it until he hit the ground. He looks up and he saw, whoa. I've been thrown out of heaven. Sorry, maybe too much MMA. But anyway, that's what I'm seeing here. So he didn't even know it till he hits the ground. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, now he picks up pursuit. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Is he pursuing the nation of Israel? Is he pursuing Mary herself? But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness in the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. It's from the book of Daniel. It's kind of confusing, but it's prophetic timeline of things unfolding. But did you see this great rescue from God for the woman? I referred to this last week, the, the scene from The Hobbit, if you've read the book or watched the movie, where the dwarfs and Bilbo, they're up in the trees, the orcs are in pursuit. It looks like they're about to die. All the trees are on fire. And at the last minute, the great eagles sweep in and rescue. Except this imagery doesn't originate with J.R. Tolkien. It actually originates in the Old Testament. This is the way the great rescue is described from Exodus. The nation of Israel in bondage and slavery in Egypt. God rescues them. This is Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is describing the rescue of God. Like a great eagle flying down and rescuing God's people. Isaiah 40, verse 31. This is probably a familiar verse to you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is how the rescue of God is described for us. Not like an eagle who clutches prey in, their, in, in, in its talons, but an eagle who nestles underneath its wings, its little chicklets for protection. God hides us in the shadow of his wing like a great eagle. And so the woman is protected. She's carried off to the wilderness. Are we talking about Mary? Is that where Mary is right now? Or is this the nation of Israel? And then the dragon wages war. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. Now we read in John 8 what comes out of his mouth. Lies. So it seems like this warfare of deception and lies is being waged and it's running rampant on the earth like a, like a rushing, flooding river. 
to sweep her away with a flood. Verse 16, but the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. So whether you're talking about Mary or the nation of Israel, look at what he does next. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. I believe that's the church. The rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So right now, that war is being waged against us. Right now. A war of deception and lies, rushing deceit coming at you every day. It originates in media. It originates in culture. It originates sometimes in our own minds. When we give way, when we let our minds give way to the temptation of the evil one to spin lies. A person doesn't love you person doesn't like you. God doesn't love you. This despair is never going to end. Go ahead, take your own life. That's the only way out. Lies of the enemy. And it's a battle of belief. And Jesus says to you, my child, do you not believe that I stepped out of the tomb alive? I know what you're going through is hard right now. I, I do. Jesus walked in our skin. He knows what pain feels like. He knows what tears taste like. He knows the despair of suffering. Remember his prayer in the garden? Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. He was feeling the weight of suffering, but he followed it up with, nevertheless, not my will be done, your will. See, it's a moment of belief. It's a battle of belief in that moment. Who are you going to believe? The enemy or Jesus? Right now, his enemy is waging war on you, every one of you. If you're married, he's attempting to attack your marriage on a daily basis. Our lives bear the testimony of that. Amen? Amen. Teenagers, he's attempting to distort your identity. He's, he's tempting you to find your purpose and your value in what you look like or your job description, what your major is going to be in college, what you're going to be when you grow up. God says, don't buy into that foolishness. I give you your purpose. I'm the one who establishes your identity. Don't believe in that mess. If you're single right now and wishing you were married, I remember those days. I got married at 27, which is, was so much late, somewhat late in life whenever I was you know, in my 20s, and I were a lot of nights crying out to God, did you forget me? Holy cow. Did you forget me? Why are my friends getting married? See, I was trying to find my purpose and my value in having a wife. And God said, I need to be your everything before I'm going to give you anything. See, the enemy is constantly prowling like a lion seeking to devour you day and night. He has waged war against the descendants of Mary, against the followers of Jesus. And he's waging war on you. There's tons of hope, tons of hope. I'm gonna end with 1 Peter chapter five. Remember, this is the same Peter. In one breath, he says, you're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And in the next breath, he's trying to talk Jesus out of following his father's will. Same chapter in Matthew. Same Peter who says, I'll never deny you, and then does three times. 
So later on in his life and ministry, way after the resurrection, you're going to find this written late in your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says, let me speak some words of encouragement to you, church, from what I've learned. Let's listen to Peter as he speaks truth, as God speaks truth through Peter into our lives. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's not just happening to you. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A war has been waged against the children of God, and it is a battle of belief. How do we stand firm? We stand firm in your faith. That's how you stand firm. It's a battle of what you believe to be true. Does believing in Jesus take away all the pain and suffering and and turmoil and make everything all right? Not right now, it doesn't. But it allows the saints to say, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Think about that. I will fear no evil. Why? Because his rod and his staff are there to comfort us. His very presence and his authority comfort us in our darkest moments of despair. Believing in Jesus doesn't make the sun come up every day and shine bright. Believing in Jesus establishes us like a house built on a firm foundation. It secures us. It allows our identity to be secure regardless of what we look like or what the world is telling us. All these lies spinning around. That's what you believe. And right now, the children of God are standing firm in faith. Anchored. Anchored. Looking forward to what? The day where Jesus comes and he puts all his enemies under his feet. Satan himself will be destroyed. Death itself will Die And finally, the stench of death will be cleared out of the air. The new Jerusalem will descend, a new heaven and a new earth, free from tears, free from sorrow, free from shame, free from darkness, free from the curse. And that's what we're looking forward to. In the end, in the end, God frustrates the plans of Satan and protects the souls of his children. He frustrates the plans of Satan, and he protects the souls of his children. Does he always protect your career path? Does he always protect your selfish ambitions? Nope. He seals and protects your soul. I want to end here with us today, and next week we'll come back and we'll pick up some more of Revelation together. Um, Here's where I want to end. Um, If you're here today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's what we're talking about. You don't have to wait till he comes back to get to know him. He wants to know you intimately today. When we pray, we're not just giving up lift service or going through some kind of um, cycle of superstitions. We're actually talking to the Father. And so we want to invite you into that relationship today. Right now where you stand, all the promises of God are offered to you through believing in Jesus. And it's, only, it's a decision only you can make for yourself. 
Your spouse can't make it. Your parents can't make it. I can't make it for you. Right now, Jesus is saying, please come to me in faith. Trust in what I did for you. Trust in my resurrection. That's where you're gonna find joy and purpose and security. It's the only place you're gonna find real forgiveness and freedom from shame is to come and to trust in me. I'm gonna pray for you right now that you would do that where you're seated. As the worship team comes back up, um, I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to be in the back, um, as they always are. Um, they'll have lanyards on, says prayer partner. Um, they would really enjoy the opportunity to pray with you, pray over you. You're not too old, you're not too young, no circumstances too big or little. Um, they would really enjoy the opportunity to, to slip into a prayer room and just pray over whatever God is speaking to your heart right now. If you want to come down and kneel at the front and pray, it's not weird here, you can do that. If you just want to come and kneel, just bask in the presence of God and, and pray and cry out to him. If you just want to stay seated, just keep reading in his word. And do that. Do that. Some of us are going to stand and sing. We're going to proclaim together what we believe to be true. We're going to proclaim together where our faith lies in the truth of God's word. And we're going to do that now. Let's pray together as the worship team gets ready to come back up. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you that even though we still feel the impact of the fall, God, our lives still bear the scars of rebellion and sin and death. God, we are so thankful that you are victorious. And even though, God, even on a daily basis, we, God, we're tempted to be fearful. We're tempted to believe lies. We're tempted to divert from you the story you're writing in our lives, God, and believe a different story. God, we're tempted to follow, God, the will of Satan. We thank you that as your children, you have sealed us and marked us and you have said that we belong to you. And though he tempt us, he can't take us. Father, right now I pray for any person here who doesn't know you that they would understand that a relationship with you is not rooted in fear. It's not rooted in in your anger. It's rooted in your love and your mercy. You as a loving father are saying to each one of us, I want you. I want to adopt you into my family to call you my own. You just reminded us through this imagery of of the woman and her children that, God, you see us that way. We're not pawns on a a chessboard, God. We're not puppets in a story, but we're your children. God, it's your relentless love that that calls to us and comes to us and, and beckons us in. Father, right now I pray for any person here that doesn't know you, that they would come to you. God, as a child with open arms. God, to receive the love and mercy you have, to receive the eternal security you offer, to call you Father from now, God, until the end of time. Would you come, send your Holy Spirit to move in this room, work in us, work among us, challenge us, bring things to mind we need to deal with, convict us, save those of us that don't know you, and continue changing those of us that do. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.